How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, it's a tremendous privilege to come together to study your word, to live in a country that has a history and tradition of freedom, freedom of assembly, freedom of worship. And, Father, we pray that that freedom might continue. Father, we continue to pray for this nation in the midst of uh, many different uh, crises and and challenging situations that are taking place, that you might give wisdom to our leaders, that we might have leaders with integrity and honesty and fearlessness to face the situations uh, in the world today and in this country that they might resolve them. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, that we might grow to maturity, that we might desire that and not be derailed by distractions, and we might put our focus on uh, you and upon your word, make that the priority of our life. And now as we study your word, and especially in the area of understanding what it means to believe and to trust, we pray that you'd help us to apply that, to comprehend it, and apply it in our thinking and in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing in Romans 13.11. And tonight we're going to continue what I began last night in talking about understanding this concept of faith and belief. What does the Bible mean when it talks about belief, when it talks about faith? What do these terms actually mean? We're coming at this out of the passage we're studying in Romans 13, 11 through 14, which is a focus upon our and a challenge in terms of our spiritual growth. In this first verse, as we looked at it last time, The Apostle Paul adds something in light of what he has already been saying regarding the application of of the word, and he says, and this, in addition to what he has said before in talking about submission to government and in talking about loving one another in verses 8 through 10, now he adds this, he says, know this, and he says, and this, knowing the time. And as we saw last time, that's a perfect a participle would be a causal nuance to that participle because you know the time. In other words, he's referencing the fact that he has instructed the uh, the Romans already. They know this. They're aware of the of the uh, circumstances. They're aware of what we would say uh, in terms of our Tuesday night class. Their understanding of the dispensation that they're in the church age, and that the church age is not an age related to the fulfillment of prophecy that no prophecy need be fulfilled before the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. That's the next major event on the time scale. And as we've studied, there are some events that might fulfill prophecy prior to the rapture, but they have to do with fulfilling prophecy related to the tribulation period that comes sometime after 
uh, the rapture of the church. So he says, because we know the time, because we know uh, the situation, now it is time to awake, to be alert. There are many passages, I pointed out some last time, talking about the fact that we as believers need to be alert. We need to be watchful. We need to be focused on the fact that we have a spiritual mission in our life. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we're to be involved in witnessing both with our life and with our lips. So we are to be alert, not um, not dozing or sleeping through uh, the church age. And then he says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The word here for salvation, soteria, is a word that Paul uses in a very distinct sense in Romans. There are, there's this whole word group uh, to save in English, and often because of our American English evangelical idiom, we think of saved primarily as being saved from the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. Uh, we think of it only in the sense of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet many times the Apostle Paul uses this saved word group in distinction from justification, talking about our future deliverance. There are three phases, three tenses to salvation, and the use of that term in the New Testament, we're saved from the penalty of sin when we trust Christ as Savior. We're saved from the power of sin during our Christian life, and we are ultimately saved from the presence of sin at the time that we are absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, and we are glorified. So what Paul is referring to here is our ultimate glorification, phase three, and each day, whether we're talking about the rapture or physical death, we're closer to the end of our time on earth than we anticipate. Yesterday morning, I was had an email interchange with Mike Stallard, who spoke at the pastor's conference here back in uh, back in March, and he informed me that one of the faculty members, who happens to be the same age I am, uh, went to be with the Lord three weeks ago due to uh, cancer. And I wasn't aware that he even had cancer, and he seemed to be a pretty vibrant guy. The last time I saw him, so a faculty member up there at Baptist Bible Seminary named Rod, Rodney Decker, and, and just those kinds of things just sort of strike you and make you aware of the fact that, that we think we're going to live according to the actuarial tables to the, our uh, mid to late 70s, or if you've got good genetics, and some of you I, I know have parents who live to be 90 or 95, and we think that somehow we're, we're going to fit that uh, optimistic side of the, uh, uh, of the uh, longevity scale, but it may not be that way. I'm, I remember... Uh, Dick Sumi, who happened to have also been the second pastor of Baraka Church back in the 1940s, and later he was pastor of Moody Memorial Church in in uh, Chicago, and then he was the chaplain at Dallas Theological Seminary. And at the time that I was a student in the late 70s, he had been on kidney dialysis longer than any other person in the United States. And he was just a, he just seemed to be very healthy and very, very vigorous. And uh, some 10 years uh, later, in sometime in the mid-80s, uh, Dr. Sumi went to be with the Lord. Had nothing to do with kidney failure. He was killed in a head-on collision. We have no idea when the Lord's going to take us home. 
he has our time marked out, and it could be we may think it's going to be one thing, and it could be something else. We don't know if it will be today, tomorrow, or 20 or 30 years from now. But what Paul is pointing out here is as each day goes by, our salvation, phase three glorification, is nearer than it was when we first believed, when we believed. And I pointed out that the word first is not there in the uh, <clears throat> in the original text. It is supplied by the translator to make sure you catch the nuance here. The past tense of the word uh, believed is to indicate um, that this is referring back to our phase one belief. I pointed out a couple of passages last time related to the use of salvation for a phase three or future tense. Uh, Hebrews 9.28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation, that is, in the future. 1 Peter 1.5 and 1.9 were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, Future tense, future time, First Peter 1, 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, talking about, about phase three, that we will be saved from the uh, presence of sin in glorification. That is our ultimate sanctification. So when he ends, he ends on this statement that our salvation now is nearer than when we first believed. Now, what does it mean to believe? Now, that may seem like a simple question to people. Some of you have gone through this with me before. Others of you have not. Some of you haven't given it a lot of thought. But this is a a, a word that has a lot of controversy with it, specifically related to certain theological uh, disputes over the nature of the gospel and the nature of saving faith. Some people think that saving faith is a different kind of faith, that it is a gift of God and it's not the same kind of faith that is given, uh, that, that everybody experiences or uses on an everyday basis. Uh, other people think that faith is simply that. It is simply trust. So I want to go through about ten points. I started with the first point last, last week, going through introductory issues. One of the things that you find among those in Reformed theology and among some who hold to what, what is called lordship salvation, lordship salvation is a view of the gospel that a person needs to do something more or, or defines faith in the sense of something more than simple belief, that, that faith is somehow involves a commitment to the authority of Christ at salvation. And so they would make the word faith a synonym of commitment. Commitment may be a result of faith, but they are not synonyms. You're not going to find them as listed as, as synonyms. So one of the ways they make a distinction is in this concept of head faith versus heart faith. At the very core of this debate is a gross misunderstanding on their part, I believe, of the nature of faith just etymologically and linguistically as well as as it's been studied and analyzed uh, through philosophy, not to mention, and primarily, of course, what Scripture teaches, that faith is simply belief. That's In English, that's probably the best word to use is either the verb believe or the noun belief, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. But we, we see an artificial distinction here. Actually, the word heart in Scripture is often a synonym 
for thought or for the mind or for thinking. It's the word heart, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or New Testament, is never used of the physical organ in the body. It's never used that way. It's always used as a as a metaphor, and usually it is descriptive of the center or the core of something. And so when it comes to the the soul, the soul, the immaterial part of man, sometimes heart refers to the entirety of the soul, with, and, but usually it has an emphasis on the thinking. We looked at several verses last time. I found a couple of more. Psalm 15.2 talks about speaking the truth in your heart. So that it w- would, again, indicate when you're thinking and you're talking to yourself through your own rational capacity. Emotions don't speak uh, the uh, language within your within your brain speaks. Uh, Psalm forty nine three. The meditation of my heart. Meditation is a thought word. This is the thinking of the soul. Uh, you have the thought of your heart in Acts eight twenty two. All of these emphasize heart as the center of the thinking part of the soul. Psalm seventy three twenty one uses heart and mind in parallelism. This, uh, in Hebrew poetry, you have different kinds of parallelism. This is a uh, sy- uh, synonymous parallelism where heart and mind are used as synonyms. The first line is mirrored by the thought of the second line. My heart was grieved. Grieved is synonymous with being vexed. I was vexed in my mind. Mind and heart are synonymous. In 1 Samuel 2.35 God says, then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. God, of course, does not have a physical heart. Their heart and mind, often you find in Hebrew, as a Hebrewism, where two words will be used like this as, as synonyms of one another in order to emphasize the point. In Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart I test the mind. Again, we see synonymous parallelism here in the poetry. Searching and testing are parallel to one another. Heart and mind are parallel to each other. Mind equals heart. The heart is another way of talking about the thinking capacity of the soul. We see the continued synonymous parallelism in the second part of the verse, uh, where according to his ways and fruit of his doings are in synonymous parallelism. Psalm 7-9 uses hearts and minds together in a couplet that emphasizes two synonyms that are used to reinforce each other. This is the same thing that we see in Revelation 2 and 3, that God says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. So these terms go together. They're not referring to two different capacities. So, just by way of introduction, I pointed out that the basic issue is, is faith an intellectual activity? Yes, we believe with our mind. That's what we mean by an intellectual activity. Some people think, well, when you say it's intellectual, that somehow that loses something. Actually, in, historically, uh, belief is seen as an activity as, of the mind that is engaged by our volition. The volition chooses to trust something when we trust, we engage our mind in uh, accepting something to be true. Now, the Bible talks about different kinds of faith. 
There's faith. All I'm saying in this point is there's faith related to how we are justified, the faith that we exercise at phase one in the gospel. And then there is the faith that we exercise as we live our Christian life. So faith in, at salvation happens at an instant in time as we come to understand and comprehend the gospel. We get, reach a point where we say, I can believe that. Somebody was telling me in the, in the congregation recently about her husband, who's now gone to be with the Lord. Some of you will know who I'm talking about. But he reached a point for a long time he didn't want to talk about the gospel, and he reached a point where he, he reached a conscience point in his thinking where he said, I can believe that. Yeah, I can believe that. And that's the point we reach when we understand the gospel. Now, we'll get into the, the aspects of faith in just a minute. So the third point is that faith then, because we're given a command to, for example, in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe is an imperative mood verb. It is a command. It is a challenge. So we respond to a command with a decision. We're either going to do or not do the command. We're either going to do what we're commanded to do or not. So Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is a command, and so that emphasizes it is a volitional activity. Now, one of the problems that we've gotten into in the last, uh, I would say, 30 years, there's been a lot of discussion and clarification on the gospel, on understanding the gospel. When I was a student in seminary back in the uh, 70s, some of these issues were not clarified. There were people who taught these things, but the, the, the ideas behind what's come to be the free grace camp and the lordship camp uh, were not clear. In the early 80s, uh, Zane Hodges wrote a book called The Gospel Under Siege. And this was a remarkable book. The first time I read it, uh, I, I was a little bit confused by some things as I went through it because he starts off and he dealt with about three different key problem passages, James 2, a couple of passages in Hebrews, and some uh, things in John. And I had just finished teaching Hebrews. I mean, James, uh, the first time I taught James at, at my first church, and at that time, there were nobody was real, really had a clear understanding of, of James, and I was I was sort of on track, but I wasn't real clear on some things. And so when I read Hodges on that, I was a little more confused just because of my own uh, lack of understanding of aspects of James. But I read through it a second time, and then things really began to make sense. And that's just a point when you're reading something that uh, seems difficult. Go back, re- read it, reread it until you make sure you understand it. And as I got familiar with what he was saying in his vocabulary, it became, uh, it became very clear. So Zane Hodges wrote The Gospel Under Siege. I always got a chuckle out of the fact that, that um, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who was a well-known uh, professor of New Testament at Dallas and was a five-point Calvinist, gave a book review in a, at a lunch meeting uh, not long after it came out, and he said the title should be repunctuated, The Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges. <laughs> they did not agree with one another. Zane Hodges was taking on a lot of the uh, statements and a lot of the theology that was taught by John MacArthur, 
uh, for, and, and uh, Dr. Johnson would have been sympathetic with that. And so they were on opposite sides. And it was good to listen to those kinds of debates to get clarity. As the free grace movement sort of developed, it picked up this terminology, free grace. They started a, a theological society that was focused on doing academic research and producing a lot of publications and in-depth studies on different issues in this, this whole arena of, uh, of debate. And that became known as the Grace Evangelical Society. They had a more academic purpose. Many of you are familiar with the Grace Evangelical Society. Robert Wilkin is the president. They produced many, many wonderful good things in the 80s and 90s. They began to get sidetracked a little bit in about 10 or 12 years ago. About that same time, another organization came along called the Free Grace Alliance. Now, I was actually at the initial formative meeting of the Free Grace Alliance, and they were really focused on using on a more practical aspect of of organizing pastors and churches and individuals who believed in a free grace gospel in terms of supporting missionaries, establishing Bible colleges and seminaries, things of that nature. Unfortunately, in my my view, both of these organizations began to get sidetracked and focus on some 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 really minimal non-essential aspects of some of their uh, theological thinking that got both of these organizations off track. And that is a sad thing to watch, but that's kind of the state that we're in uh, right now. And one of the issues that they uh, got caught up in is whether or not vo- uh, belief was volitional. And I've read four or five articles dealing with this. Uh, as I've come to understand this in talking to them, they're really not dealing with what we would, what I teach in terms of faith being volitional. What they are dealing with is that there are some groups, and apparently there's some writings that emphasize that if you um, if you don't know when you made a decision for Jesus, then you're not saved, and they call that decisional uh, evangelism. And I see a number of you shaking your heads. Yes, that's wrong. So when they're talking about the fa- this, when they're making critiques of vo- the use of volition or emphasis on volition, that's what they're talking about. They're not always talking about the way we use it. So sometimes you have to read people in light of the debate that they're in because if you take them out of context and take what they say in light of the debate that you're in, it may sound like you don't agree. But they do have some areas where this is a problem. But if belief is an imperative mood, that's the nature of the, of the grammar, then it's addressed to your choice. And you have to make a choice one way or the other. So it's very clear this isn't the only place that believe is used as in an imperative, but this is one of them. Now we get to the fourth point. Now this is a point that, that is difficult. If you've never thought this through, if you've never been exposed to some uh, rigorous logic or philosophical thought in the area of understanding some things, then this might be difficult for you to understand. One of the things that many of you have in your background, many of us as Christians have heard this, is that the difference between Christianity, a biblical Christianity, and religion is that biblical Christianity is about a relation with a person. 
and religion in the guise of many forms of religious type Christianity is more about religious activity and liturgy. That's not what we're talking about here. When you talk, when we talk about faith, faith is in, in pure logic, faith is believing a proposition to be true. That's what faith is. Faith is when you believe that a proposition is true. Now, proposition is a technical term. I didn't understand that until I took logic uh, some about 15 years ago. I had never understood that. I'd always, though, heard that when we talk about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, we believe that, that the Word of God contains propositional truth. Proposition is a technical term. A proposition is a statement that can either be proved to be true or false. An imperative is not a proposition. If I say go to the store, you can't prove whether that's true or false. It's just a a request or a command. If I say, is it raining outside, that's a question. You can't prove if it's true or false. It's, It's a question. But if I say it's raining outside... You can prove whether or not that is true or false. If I say the speed limit is 35, you can prove whether that is true or false. If I said Muhammad uh, did not claim to be God but claimed to be a prophet of God, you can prove whether that is true or false by looking at evidence within the Quran and within history. So propositions can be tr- proved to be true or false. When the scriptures... Pr- describe things for us and inform us of God's plan and purposes, this is given and can be expressed in terms of propositions. God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Is that true or false? That's a proposition. It's true. God used that as a pattern or the command for the uh, Israelites to rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath law. Is that true or false? That's true. Jesus was born of a virgin. Is that true or false? That's true. Those are propositions that can be proven to be true or false. They're not just hanging out there that you, you guess it. So that's what I mean by the first sentence. Faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed in a proposition. We believe in the person of Jesus as the God-man. How do you know he's the God-man? Anybody here seen Jesus? I hope not. Outside of the Apostle Paul and Stephen, nobody has seen Jesus in a long, long time. How do you know Jesus? You and I only need know Jesus because he has been revealed to us through the word of God. And it is expressed there. John says in John 20, uh, 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that these refer to the signs that he's described in the Gospel of John. And so uh, we can say that, that the Scripture teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. You either believe it's true or you don't believe it. So what we know about Jesus and his person is expressed to us through propositions in Scripture. That is what I mean when I say that we believe in Christ, but what we believe about Christ can be expressed as in propositional form. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who entered into human history 
and went to the cross to die for our sins that we might have eternal life. True or false? That's it. Okay, that's faith. We express it in terms of believing a proposition to be true. So a proposition then in the second sentence is the verbal expression of a thought which can be verified or falsified. Therefore, faith is not a function of emotion. It's not, I don't feel like it's true. That's not what we're saying. We, we, we believe it's true because we understand it, we've evaluated it, we've looked at the evidence in favor of it and against it, and we conclude that it is true. That is what we believe. It is a mental function. Now, historically, in Reformed Christianity primarily, uh, that it, the, those are the, the theological systems that derive from John Calvin expressed through the Scottish Presbyterian Church, Dutch Reformed Church, Huguenots, a Congregational Church, uh, Swiss Calvinist, as opposed to German Lutheran or Baptist, those that have their influence. And there are some Reformed Baptists, so they would trace their theology back to Calvin as well. They broke faith down. This is, this is kind of interesting to a, a word-loving kind of person like I am. They broke the process. Of how do we really understand faith? Let's pick it apart and look at the components so we know that we really believe something. So what's involved in doing this? First of all, you have to understand it. That doesn't mean you understand what the pastor said. You understand, I mean, in terms of, oh, yeah, he said it. It sounded good. I believe it because he said it. No, you have to understand the content of what the pastor taught. I've heard people over the years reiterate something they thought I said, and I go, really? I'm always amazed at that. I'll hear people say something back to me. I remember when you taught such and such, I go, really? Hmm. Where was I that day? And I've heard that from uh, about other pastors as well. People say, well, I remember so-and-so, and he taught such and such. I go, Really? Where have you been? You know, what radio did you listen to while you were in church? Anyway, so the first thing is we really have to understand what the proposition is. When we say Jesus died on the cross for your sins, we have to have some understanding of what that means. It doesn't have to be the understanding of a Ph.D. in theology, but we have to understand the basic concepts of, of those words. So there has to be an understanding of the meaning of what it is that we're believing. We can't believe something we don't understand because how do you know you believe it? When you come to understand it, you may not believe it. So it's, it's, it's foundational. The second thing, component that they saw in, in saving faith was a census, the Latin word for assent or agreement, saying, yeah, I, I understand that and, and that's true. I understand that and that is true. And then they defined faith with a third word, fiducia, which means, which is, which means belief. Now here's the trouble. The English word faith comes from, this is on this slide in the left-hand column, the English word faith comes from the Latin noun fides. Fides, go back to the other slide, fides is the root for fiducia. Rule number one in defining things is you never define something, a word, with itself. You use other words and other terms to define something. 
You can't say, I'm going to define white. White is white. No, you haven't defined it. You, all, you never define a word with what it is. So, so it's sort of a word game here. This is, this is sort of a semantic uh, game of uh, a, 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 a sort of a semantic shell game here. If we were to translate this fides, what is it? Fides is fides. You see, they've by, by shifting from Latin to English, they've tried to avoid being seen as defining the term by itself. So they've slipped something else in there. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that the word faith that we have in English comes by way of the French from the Latin. Fides, and then it goes into... Um, it goes into uh, French and then into into English. In um, the Middle Ages, faith is first used in the mid-13th century, and it has the sense at that point of the duty of fulfilling one's trust. Now think about that for a minute. Is that what we mean when we say, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Are we saying, do you believe that you have you have the duty of fulfilling one's trust. In other words, it's taking us beyond simple belief to adding a component of commitment and duty. But that derives from this medieval use of the term in French, coming from the uh, coming out of the Latin, and then in the English word in the right column that we have here, belief has its origin in uh, Middle English influenced by, by medieval German and medieval Anglo-Saxon. And uh, these words uh, from the gl- word Glauben in, in um, German and some other terms used in Anglo-Saxon had the simple sense of trusting in God in contrast to being loyal to a person. Belief in the sense that it had in the English word, meant mental acceptance of something as true, what we call intellectual assent. Now, a lot of people think that just sounds cold and distant, but that's what belief is. You understand it, and you agree that it is true. When you're adding up a column of numbers, this is one of my favorite illustrations because you all know I hate numbers. When you add up a a column of numbers and you arrive at the answer, and then you double, triple, and quadruple check, and any time I'm adding up, up a column of numbers, if I come up with the same answer twice, I know it has to be right because miracles don't occur anymore. Um, so we, we, what do you do? You stop. You rest. You put your pen down. You agree that what you have done is correct, and you rest. You, uh, it's not a commitment. I agree that this is true. I believe it's true. I'm not committed to it. In, in, in an additional sense, just I believe it's true. I agree it's true. That's the sense of, of belief. So the basic meaning of the English word believe coming from an Anglo-Saxon German background meant mental acceptance of something is true. But when you come along into the 1500s, and remember English as a language in 1500 was not anything like it was in 1600. It goes through its, one of its periods of greatest development between 1500 and 1600, and why is that? 
It's because the Bible starts being translated into English. And you had Tyndale's translation, you had Coverdale's translation, you had the Geneva Bible that's translated into English. And then people want to have the Bible in their own, own hand, their own language, and it begins to solidify and stabilize the language in terms of development. And then what happens at the beginning of the 1600s? Two things that remarkably stabilize uh, the English language. William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare and the King James Bible. Both occur roughly at the same time, and this takes English out of its formative stage into a whole new arena where it's used in, in poetry, it's used in drama, it's used in expressing extremely high and complex thoughts. And today, English is one of the most profound languages on the planet. If you ever are in, in, on the mission field taking uh, the Bible into some other language that doesn't have the history of English, it's really difficult because uh, English has developed due to the, uh, the impact of the Reformation in, in Britain and England an extremely broad technical theological vocabulary. You go over to some place like Russia where they use the Russian synodal text and every time they have the Greek word dikaiosune for righteousness in the Greek text, they translated it with the Russian word pravda, which means truth. Truth and righteousness are not the same thing. And you don't have a lot of words that are used. in these. I remember the first time I went with uh, Jim Myers to Kazakhstan. And that was one of those uh, those summers that was it was the first week of August. It was a uh, high desert like Tucson temperature during the day would reach 112, 115 in the shade. We had a room about a third the size of this room, and there were approximately 90 students crammed into that room. And they slept there at night. They just folded up the chairs and the tables and put their pallets down on the floor, and they slept there and in a couple of other rooms in this house that served as, as the meeting place of the church. And they had one uh, window unit and ran full-time, 24-7, seven days a week, and he kept the temperature down to about 98 degrees in the room. We had two, two, two sections of the, of the class because half the students on the left were Kazakh speakers, and the other half were Russian speakers. So when I would give, when I would talk, I would give a sentence, and then it would be translated into Russian by one translator, translated into Kazakh by the other translator. Now, Jim had hired these translators. Actually, the Kazakh translator was the wife of the pastor. She fluently spoke, I mean, she was fluent and, and, and almost unaccented in four or five different languages. The guy we originally hired that was translating into Russian had had, um, had translated for a number of uh, well-known English uh, American pastors who had come over and taught in Kazakhstan. When I used words like justification and sanctification, he looked at me like I was speaking another language that he didn't know. That's a sad commentary on the fact that traditional words in, a, in, 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 in the English Bible are not used commonly by pastors. But we had to get a new translator because he was just his his theological vocabulary was just impoverished. He didn't know how to handle these things. It took Jim Myers several years working with Margaret, his first uh, translator, in working through Bible verses, crafting how to correctly in, uh, translate 
these technical terms like justification, propitiation, faith, um, belief, things like that that were in the English Bible. So it's very important to understand that. But this is important in terms of the lordship free grace debate is because lordship says faith is better because it adds this component of loyalty to God, whereas belief is simply assenting to the truth of Scripture. But the English word belief is almost identical in meaning to the Greek word pistevo. It's the the word faith through its Latin-French background that picked up additional meanings in the sense of loyalty so that you will have pastors. I think in many ways they're synonymous, but you will have many pastors who will say, see, it's not a matter of simple belief. It's not just head faith. You have to you have to have faith. It's it's heart faith, and so they create this artificial distinction uh, between the two. And the core meaning is simply assent or agreement that what the Bible says is true. But it depends on what the Bible says to be true. Hold, stay, hold your place. Turn over to James. The Epistle of James is right after Hebrews. This is one thing that you often hear people say. Well. This is in, just simple intellectual assent. The demons have it, and uh, and they're not saved. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, James is talking about the person who has faith and no works, no application, and the person who has faith and has application. And he gives an illustration of this. In verse 19, he says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, what is it that the demons believe in that verse? They believe in one God. Is believing in one God salvific? No, that's not the gospel. They believe in there's one God. Unbelievers believe in there's one God. People who are going to go to the lake of fire believe there's one God. That's not the gospel. So this isn't a picture of false faith or pseudo-faith in the gospel or simply intellectual assent that doesn't do them any good. They truly believe there's one God. They know there's one God not just by faith, but by sight. But believing that God is one is not the belief proposition. The belief proposition is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he paid the penalty so that by faith alone, in Christ alone, you can have eternal salvation. So point number five. Therefore, since faith is in a proposition, we don't believe directly in a person. We don't believe directly in Jesus. I've heard some people say that. I don't believe a proposition. I believe a person. But we only learn about the person through propositions. The propositions tell us who the person is. But we're believing the propositions. We haven't seen Jesus. We believe what John said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we don't believe directly in a person or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus. That's another way in which people often confuse the gospel. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, guess what? Judas Iscariot had a relationship with Jesus, and it didn't do him any good. He wasn't saved. There were Jesus' brothers had a relationship with Jesus for many years, and it wasn't until after the resurrection that they believed in him as their Savior. Having a relationship with Jesus wasn't the issue. The issue in Scripture is belief. John uses the verb 98 times without any modification in the gospel. Over and over again, the issue is believe in him. 
And incidentally, that's another way in which people uh, try to distort this. They say, well, there's a difference between believing that Jesus is the Christ and believing in him. And uh, I could give you citation after citation after citation that linguistically uh, there's no difference between believing the Greek phrase believe in and believe that. They are semantic equivalents. So it means the identically same thing. So what this tells us is that faith is rational, it's not irrational. That's what a lot of secularists would have us believe also, is that it's irrational. You separate faith from reason, you separate faith from science. Faith is just what you have to believe as if it has nothing to do with the intellect or with evidence or with thought. You just, you just have to believe it because there is no evidence. But the writer of Hebrews says that evidence, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Faith is knowledge. It's just not knowledge through perception. It's knowledge based on the revelation from God. So point number six, faith is an activity of the mentality of the soul, which is the affirmation and agreement that something is true. Now let me clarify this. There's a difference between saying, I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is died on the cross for my sins. Let me give you an analogy. I believe that Darwin taught that human beings evolved from monkeys. Does that mean that I believe that human beings evolved from monkeys? No. I'm just saying I believe that Darwin said that human beings evolved from monkeys. There are a lot of people who may say, I believe the Bible says Jesus died for my sins, but they don't believe that Jesus died for their sins. That's just what the Bible says, but I don't believe it. So saving faith is believing that Jesus died on the cross, not just not for the sins of the world, but for your sins. It's personal. Jesus died for you. I believe Jesus died for me. I remember I had a camper when I was in, in college uh, working in Camp Penile, and I had a camper came to me one night, and, for the, he, and he'd grown up in a uh, Bible church here in Houston, a Christian family. I knew his uh, his brother real well. He said, I just realized tonight that that, that Jesus died for me. Now, he may have been saved before that, but I think he reached a point, at least whether it was just a, a reaffirmation or whether maybe he, he believed it was the first time in his life he believed not just that Jesus died as a historical fact, but that Jesus died for him. That's that personal object. I believe Jesus died for my sins and that that's the basis of why I go to heaven. If somebody were to sit you down and say, uh, God is going to ask you when you get to heaven why he should let you in. What's your answer going to be? How would you answer that? It's very simple. Because Jesus died for my sins. That's the answer. I asked that question one time, my first church, when I was interviewing somebody for membership. I said, well, tell me, if you died today and you went before the throne of God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And she looked at me like I had grown a horn between my eyes. It was causing her to have to think and put it together in a way that she had never heard it before. And I had to talk to her for a while. Finally, you know, because I was pretty sure that she was saved. She just had never heard that quite that way before. Seventh point is faith has no merit in itself. All the merit lies in the object of faith. Faith is the conduit. It's, it's, the scripture says we're saved through faith, not because of faith. 
So faith is like the electronic wiring in the building. The, the, the wiring doesn't generate power. The, the wiring isn't the source of electricity. It is simply the conduit that moves the electricity from the generator to the light bulb. It's the means by which something gets from one point to the other. So the object of faith is what has the merit, which is Jesus Christ. Not the fact that I'm so smart that I believed, but that Jesus is the one who died. That's the point. So it doesn't matter how much faith I have or how sincere I am. If I have $1,000 in my checking account, if I believe that, but I only have a dollar, actually only have a dollar in it, I'm in trouble. You see, faith means that, that the object has to be worthy and true. I'm believing in Christ. It's not the sincerity or the quality of my faith. I may believe the wrong thing. The issue is I have to believe the right thing, which is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And the eighth point, I only have two more after this. Faith as an intellectual activity excludes emotion. It's not about how we feel. Now, there may be feeling associated with it. When we come to under, when some people come to understand Christ died on the cross for them, they can be quite emotional. I remember when my parents told the gospel to me, I was so excited. I just lit out of the house and ran down the street to tell my best friend. I was excited. Other people are just overwhelmed and they may weep because they, they, they realize that they're saved. There's all kinds of emotions that may come with the faith in Christ, but they're not faith in Christ. They're simply the consequence of the intellectual activity. Now, I use this chart a lot. It's familiar to some of you, not to others. There are four ways, historically, as people have thought and talked and investigated the idea of how we come to know anything, there are four ways in which we come to know something. What I'm, the point I'm making here is that, that faith is always present. The, 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 the most devout atheist operates on faith. Uh, the, um, the most devout scientist operates on faith. Now, they may, they may try to juxtapose faith and reason, but re- their belief in reason is a belief. See, it's a belief that in reason that comes before the reason. So I break it down this way. Historically, there are four, three, four ways in which we come to know anything. The first is rationalism. Rationalism is the idea that we start with certain innate ideas and our faith is in human ability to understand and logically develop from those starting uh, first principles. And so it's built on an independent use of logic and reason that is independent of God. Empiricism doesn't start with innate ideas. Empiricism starts with sense perception. It starts with what we see, hear, feel, taste, touch. Uh, Plato in the ancient world is an example of rationalism. Descartes in the modern world, uh, rationalism couldn't really get to eternal, to infinite things or ultimate causation. Empiricism can't either. Um, empiricism operates on the idea of observation and external experience. Now, both of these are true in a, in a limited sense. We learn a lot from both rationalism and empiricism. In terms of empiricism, Adam learned a lot in the garden. He was to name all of the animals. 
And he learned about all the trees and the different kinds of fruit and all the different food that God provided for Adam and Eve. But there's one thing Adam couldn't learn in the garden through either rationalism or empiricism. And that was that if he ate from the fruit of one tree, he would die. He could only learn that if God told him. So I'm not saying empiricism and rationalism are wrong. They're just limited. They, They can't get us to ultimate truth. Now, sort of a perversion of both of these is mysticism. Mysticism is the idea that I can come to know truth on the basis of some sort of inner feeling, some sort of intuitive flash of insight. And this is not subject to verification through logic or anything rational. It's non-verifiable. I just know it's true because it's true. Don't confuse me with facts. Don't confuse me with logic. It's true because I just know it. How do you know UFOs exist? I just know it. There has to be somebody living on other planets. I just know it. Well, on what basis? Is there any evidence at all? No, none whatsoever. You know, that's just, that's mysticism. That's like, mysticism is what was the ground for many of the ancient pagan religions. It's also basic, see, where, where does all of the activity take place in rationalism? Between your ears. Where does all the activity take place in mysticism? Same place between your ears. Mysticism is rationalism gone to seed. That's, that, that's why you can say that the whole modern environmentalist movement, if you understand its pagan roots, is ultimately the result of mysticism, not science. In fact, there's a new DVD out I'm hearing from people that is fabulous on the whole issue of climate science and global warming and environmentalism. And I'm thinking that this is something we probably need to address uh, some night, and so uh, we'll be showing that sometime during the summer in Bible class. I'm going to watch it. I ordered it a couple of days ago. Uh, Charlie Clough has been uh, just really high on this for several months. Dan Ingram watched it a couple of weeks ago. I want to sit down and watch it and develop. It, it's an hour and a half. I think that's too much for one night Bible class, so I'm thinking about cutting it in half and having some discussion questions. So we have 45 minutes and then uh, some discussion questions about it. Very important. So the fourth way in which we know truth is revelation. God tells us things that we can neither learn from rationalism nor empiricism, such as if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so in uh, Revelation, there's objective revelation from God, and we use logic and reason to understand it. But we don't let, we don't develop an independent system of reason tell us that, oh no, God can do it. That's what 19th century liberalism did. Came along and said, well, we've got what we think are facts that we've discovered in, in science that tell us that the earth is really old. We haven't, we can't figure out how that could fit with the Bible, so therefore the Bible must be wrong. Where are they putting all of their faith? In their human ability to, to properly interpret those facts. Now, some 200 years later, they misinterpreted a lot of those facts, and scientists know that, but they still hold to the theory of evolution. So we have to use logic and reason, but we assume the Bible is true, and that's our starting point, not something within the creation. So then under point nine, 
we understand that faith is not something we do. It's not something we get merit for. It's something that is a channel. The merit is in the object. So we speak of faith as being non-meritorious. We're saved by grace through faith. And then the last point is that I've alluded to already is that Scripture divides faith into two types. So we always, when we look at a passage that talks about faith, we need to ask, is this talking about faith related to phase one justification or is this talking about faith in towards the promises and statements of Scripture for my spiritual growth and spiritual life? All right, that's a lot on faith. It's very important to un- understand this. Faith is simply belief that what the Scripture says is true. Now, it's important to understand that in regard to the gospel, that means believing that Christ died for my, my sins is what I believe and if I believe that, then I'm saved. Well, what about do I have to believe in the deity of Christ? Well, you can't reject the deity of Christ. But that may not be an issue when somebody explains the gospel to you. It's implicitly there, but it's not explicitly there. You can't explicitly reject it. But you're implicitly believing it when you believe the gospel. You're implicitly believing the resurrection. You're implicitly believing several other things in a normal gospel presentation that aren't necessarily talked about. Uh, When we've gone through the, the, the whole illustration of the barrier, the different dimensions of what Christ did on the cross... Christ died to redeem us from our sins. He, he died to propitiate God. He died uh, to justify us. Uh, all of these are different facets to what Christ did on the cross. We don't have to understand all of them to be saved. We just have to understand that Christ died on the cross for his sins. A, a, a four-year-old or three-year-old child can understand that. He can barely understand what death is but he can comprehend to some degree that he's got a problem. Jesus solved the problem when he died on the cross, and if he believes that, he'll go to heaven for eternity. They can comprehend that. There's a lot more to the gospel than that because we spend our whole lives trying to comprehend it all. But you don't have to comprehend it all to get saved. You just have to believe that basic principle, that basic proposition of Scripture that Christ died for your sins. So next time we'll come back and start looking at the next few verses, which are some of the most significant verses related to the spiritual life in the New Testament and really connect to passages in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and, and several other passages, James 1, 1 Peter 2, all of these connect together. So we'll come back to that next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, reflect upon what it means to believe, what it means to trust, to accept what you say to be true, and then we rest upon it. And, Father, we pray that that will be confirmed uh, in our thinking as we meditate on this, come to understand the truth of that, that our salvation is not by anything that we do, not by works of righteousness, but according to your mercy you saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.